Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys familiar with that saying, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care? And whether or not that's always the most helpful sentiment, for most of us, we, we tend to agree with that. If someone has, in your life, maybe come up and pr tried to provide some constructive criticism or critiqued you, but you don't really feel that you know them and they don't really know who you are, you sort of wonder, you know, who are you to be critiquing me? Do you even know me enough? Or let's say, if, even if they live out, uh, they're, they're kind of hypocritical in their own life on these things, it, it makes their critique fall flat, doesn't it? However, if someone comes up to us who we've walked with for a long time, who knows us deeply, and who we know cares about us deeply, if they come up and offer us some sort of constructive criticism or feedback, we often hopefully take that much more seriously. Paul is sharing his burden with the Colossians in this chapter, in this section that uh, Jonathan just read for us, in a way that is... Uh, lending credibility to what he is going to say throughout the rest of the, of the letter to the Colossians. He is bearing his heart. He is showing his care about these matters and about his care for this particular church. He shares his burden with them so that they know where he's coming from when later he eventually gets to ex exhortations and even his warnings. So if you're familiar with the book of Colossians, earlier in the book, which we haven't read, but earlier in the book, Paul begins with the biggest scope possible, God's cosmic plan for his creation and how God is transferring people out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then he goes off in verses 15 through 23, this hymn about Christ who is preexistent, the one through whom God made all things and for whom he made all things, in whom God holds all things together, and not only is he preeminent, is he the first over creation, but he's the first over the new creation, over the church, the head of the church, his body. And so Paul begins with the cosmic plan of the Father's redemption, 
and then how that cosmic plan is worked out in the sun. Just massive big picture stuff. And then when we come to verse 24, now Paul is going to show us his place in that divine plan. How does Paul fit in? Paul has been made an apostle of that son through whom God is working his plan of redemption. And Paul has been tasked with proclaiming this redemption to all creation, the mystery at the center of God's divine plan to redeem all things. It's like a foot soldier tasked with delivering a message that once conveyed has the ability to change the course of an entire war and potentially even the course of world history itself. So Paul sees himself as a foot soldier of Christ, a mere foot soldier, but nonetheless a foot soldier of Christ. And he has been conscribed into nothing less than God's plan to redeem the world. And so Paul is explaining how God's cosmic plan of redemption has embraced Paul's mission, and by extension, now how it is reaching the Colossians. He's talking about this redemption, this message that he has been tasked to bring even them. And so if you were to boil down this passage into one sentence, sort of a sermon in a sentence, what is this passage all about? It is this, that the gospel is worth laboring for. The gospel is worth laboring for. And if we were to unpack that a little bit more, we would say this, Paul rejoices to labor for the gospel, even to the extent of suffering for it, because he longs to see churches reach full maturity and assurance in Christ. Paul rejoices to labor for the gospel, even suffering for the gospel, because he longs to see churches that he's laboring for, reach full maturity and assurance in Christ. And he brings this up because he wants the Colossians to see from his own example that if this gospel is worth laboring for and suffering for, then it's certainly worth holding on to and resisting the false teaching that is currently threatening them in this book. And so what we'll do is we'll look at five traits about Paul's labor for the gospel in this passage to understand that message. Five traits about Paul's labor for the gospel. The first we see is Paul's commission, that Paul has been divinely commissioned or appointed to proclaim Christ. Paul has been divinely appointed. Look at verse 25 with me. Of which, that is the church, Christ's church, I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship or the commission, the appointment from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul receives his commission, notice this, from God, the stewardship from God given to him for them. Maybe you've uh, been getting coffee with someone and you've had this happen where you guys have your phone out on the, on the table, you're, you're drinking coffee though, and all of a sudden someone's phone rings. Now, as you know, we just had, what was the election on Tuesday? And we, every, if you're like me, your phone is getting inundated with texts and with phone calls, all these robocalls and stuff like that, people trying to advertise to you. And that happens even outside of election season, right? You're getting these calls from upstate New York, and you're like, I don't know anybody from upstate New York. Who's calling me, right? I, we have your business score, and you have a line of credit awaiting you, right? Most people, when they see that unknown number, what do they do? They don't answer it. You know, you silence your phone, you keep having coffee, talk to the person in front of you. However, 
if you're, ha if you're grabbing coffee, Jonathan, Jonathan and I are grabbing coffee, and all of a sudden one of our phones ring, phone rings and it's our wife, you know, we're probably going to answer the phone because it could be something important. The person delivering the message carries a bit more weight than the random person from upstate New York I don't know. And how much more here when Paul is saying, listen, the message that I have, the commission I've been given, is from God himself. Heed this message. This isn't some human message. This isn't some random idea. This is something, a stewardship I have received from no, a person no less than God himself. And as the Colossians are bombarded with false teaching, the point then is don't move away from the true gospel into what these false teachers are offering you. Stay to the divinely given gospel. As you guys have been in, in Galatians, even if an angel from heaven is to, per, is to per, proclaim a different gospel, don't go after it. Secondly, we see Paul's message. So Paul has been divinely commissioned, but now what is the actual message that he has been commissioned to proclaim? And this, Paul says, is the mystery of God's plan of redemption in Christ. It's the mystery of God's plan of redemption in Christ. Look at verse 26 and 27. The word of God that he's to make fully known is this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, to the saints, God chose to make known, to reveal this mystery, which is how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ among you, even the Gentiles, the very hope you have for eventually achieving glory. Or look at verse 2 in chapter 2. Or again, he there says that the mystery at the very end of that verse, God's mystery, which is Christ. God's mystery, the unveiling of his redemptive plan is revealed in the Messiah, Christ, Jesus. He is the center of God's redemptive plan, this unveiled mystery. Now, this word mystery, when we hear it, we tend to think of it as like, this is something that's impossible to understand, right? Something is mysterious, but that's not how the New Testament uh, or scripture at large would use the word mystery. Um, it refers to something that is previously hidden or secret, but now it's something that God has disclosed as he's brought it to fulfillment. It's language that comes from the book of Daniel. It's language that talks about God's plan of, of, of unveiling his kingdom purposes. You might think of it kind of like encrypted data. The data, though it's encrypted, it's, it's still there. It's always there, but it was previously hidden. And now in Christ's arrival, God's purposes have been unencrypted. Or if you like to watch movies, maybe you watch a movie a second time. And if there's a plot twist in the movie, maybe it's a bit of a suspenseful movie or a drama. Sometimes when you watch the movie a second time, you end up picking up details. Details which were always there but now you see them in a bit of a new light and you can actually appreciate them a whole lot more. Augustine, one of the early church theologians, put it this way. He said, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. Okay, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. What the new is going to bring about and show us, it's already concealed in the Old Testament and the new is the old then revealed. 
The New Testament reveals what the Old Testament conceals. And so that's the mystery. That's the idea of mystery here. It's the unveiling of God's plan. And specifically, what is that plan that Paul has in view here? It's the redemption that Christ accomplished and extending that salvation even to the Gentiles. This is how Paul uses the word mystery in Ephesians, which is very much a parallel letter. And here you see that even among the Gentiles that they have the hope of glory. This Jewish Messiah has come to save them and include them in his covenant people. And so as Paul will go on, go, will go on to eventually address the false teaching, remember in the book of Colossians, he has a particular false teaching in view. Everything he's saying is eventually targeting those false teachers. He wants to tell his audience, which is largely Gentile in Colossae, he wants to say, hey, Watch out for those false teachers who are, if you know the book of Colossians, they're largely promoting a lot of Jewish sort of regulations and rules that one had to follow, they said, in order to really have maturity and to really be spiritual and have insight. And he's saying, listen, Gentile believers, you have Christ. The mystery has been disclosed. Christ is even among you. He is all you need. Don't, don't, don't let anyone discredit you. Don't let anyone delude you with plausible arguments, he says in verse 4, with this sort of extra criteria that adds to the gospel. The gospel is all you need. Don't veer away from this Christ, he says in verse 3. It's in Christ that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you look over at chapter 2, verse 23, he says that the false teachers, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom. What they promote has the appearance of wisdom. Don't go after what is merely the appearance of wisdom, religiosity and rules, when in Christ you have the very treasures of wisdom. There's a couple in our church. It seems like everybody in our church that's single is getting married right now. We had like six weddings. Like I said, we're a young church. We had like six weddings this year. It's insane. And one of the couples, uh, when, the, when the man proposed to his fiance, uh, you know, a lot of guys, when they propose, they like to do some sort of surprise or keep it a secret. Um, but he decided to go the other route. He checked in with her first to make sure that the day worked. And so he's like, you know, does Tuesday work well for you for, for proposing? And she said, yes, that's a good day. And I'm just imagining Christine, that's her name, trying to go to work that day, knowing that Andrew is going to propose to her at some point. Um, like, once you have that information, there's no way you can shake that. Like, try, try focusing now the rest of the day, right? And that's the information that we've been given is so much greater than even that, right? The very gospel, the mystery disclosed. When we have that information, why would we go after any sort of false teaching? Don't veer from the message, which is nothing less than unveiling God's cosmic plan of redemption. Thirdly, we see Paul's aim. So we see he's been commissioned. We see the message that he's been commissioned. And now we see the aim of why he proclaims that message, which is this, that Paul strives to see churches reach full maturity and assurance in Christ, which also implies resisting the false teaching. Look at verse 28. Him, this Jesus, the very center of the mystery, we proclaim. That involves warning everyone on the one hand of like false teaching and also teaching everyone, instructing them with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
The goal of our warning and our teaching is that people would reach maturity in Christ. Or look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 2. I-, I proclaim this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. All the full assurance. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. We just had Veterans Day. This language of good order and firmness of faith is language that largely comes from military context. Uh, context to refer, refer to uh, platoons or, or, or groups of soldiers who are quite orderly and set up. He wants the church to be very orderly and set up properly, stable, not getting swayed by the false teaching. That is his aim. And so fourthly, we see Paul's struggle. This is then Paul's struggle as he pursues that aim. Paul toils even to the extent of suffering in order to carry out this commission to preach the gospel. Look at verse 24 with me. The very beginning of this passage, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Look at verse 29 now. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So he rejoices in sufferings, he toils and he struggles. Then look at chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, etc. And then at the very end, though he is absent in the body, chapter 2, verse 5, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. And so he rejoices in his struggle. He rejoices in his suffering. Now let's look at that phrase that probably caught your attention. This whole thing about filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. That that occurs in verse 24. This is probably one of the more peculiar phrases in the New Testament, um, in all of Paul's writings. What exactly is meant by that? Well, first of all, Paul is not saying that Christ's death for sin was somehow insufficient or lacking something. Okay, All all throughout Colossians, Paul has talked about how Christ's death is decisive in dealing with sin. So in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says that through Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Or in chapter 1, verse 22, he says that he has reconciled us through his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. That his death has reconciled you to God, making you blameless. Or in chapter 2, verse 14, after this passage, Paul will say that Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands by nailing it to the cross. He pictures sin as kind of like this IOU that when Jesus is nailed to the cross, our sin, our IOU, our record of our sinful debt gets nailed to the cross with Jesus so that when Jesus dies, our sin dies with Jesus. And so Paul understands Jesus' death 
is all we need for reconciliation and forgiveness with God. Paul has also, over and over throughout this book, gone out of his way to talk about how Christ is, is our only sufficient and all-sufficient Savior. He is preeminent. And so for him to suggest that Jesus' death is somehow lacking would actually undermine the entire argument of his book. What's helpful is that this word that, that gets translated in the ESV as, uh, as afflictions here is a word that is actually never used to refer to Jesus' death. It's never used to refer to Jesus dying for our sins. It's actually a, a more general word that is typically translated in the New Testament as tribulations. So Paul, in other words, is sharing in Christ's tribulations as he seeks to spread the gospel. Not that Paul is sharing in Jesus' atoning death, but he's sharing in Jesus' tribulations. And notice that these tribulations, he says, are for the church. In verse 24, he says, I am, I am doing this for the sake of his body, for your sake, Colossians, the church. We're also helped by noticing that this word, uh, translated in the ESV as filling up, filling up, it's repeated throughout this section. And let me provide a little bit of a different translation to that just to help you kind of see what I think Paul is doing. Let's translate that as complete. Rather than filling up, let's say he's completing. So notice in verse 24, Paul, Paul says that he is completing these tribulations for the church. And then in verse 25, he uses the same root word where he says that he wants to make the word of God completely known. It says fully known, same, same root word, completely known. And then in, verse 20, in chapter 2, verse 2, when he uses the word full assurance, again, it's the same root word. He says, I want to preach these things so that you might reach the complete assurance. So do you see what Paul is saying? Literally, the idea is that Paul wants to complete his sufferings as he completes proclaiming Christ in order that their assurance may be complete in Christ. In other words, Christ's ministry in accomplishing salvation was, of course, a ministry of suffering and tribulation. But that ministry of suffering is not over yet. Now, Christ's people participate in Christ's tribulations, as now we spread the message of salvation to the nations. Our suffering in spreading his salvation is an extension of Christ's suffering in accomplishing that salvation. They are both ministries of suffering. And we see this theme throughout the New Testament, right? That as we are saved and made like Christ, probably a lot of us are familiar with that idea that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That we are made like Christ. We're becoming like Christ. That's sanctification, right? But we are also, according to the New Testament, made like Jesus by being conformed to his sufferings. We are conformed of his, to his path of suffering to glory. The pathway to glory, the hope of glory, is through sufferings. It was for Jesus, and it's for those who follow in his footsteps. Romans 8, 17, Paul says that we are heirs with Christ. We're heirs of glory with Christ, provided we follow that same path. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or Philippians 3, 10 through 11 says, Paul strives that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, glory, and may share with his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Glory. Peter also describes Christ's suffering as creating something of a stencil for our own lives. So my daughter, who's five, Jubilee, she loves to color. She's obsessed with arts and crafts. Every day we're doing some new crafts she's coming up with. And sometimes she'll use a stencil, right, to, to trace something out. Peter uses that same imagery. In 1 Peter 2, 21, he says, For this, to this believer you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And that word example, it could literally be translated a stencil, a pattern. He, he forms the pattern of your own life. Your life is cross-shaped so that you may follow in his steps. Or maybe most famously, Jesus in Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? Cross and follow me. And so what Paul is saying here is that our commitment to the gospel, our, 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 our rejoicing to pursue the proclamation of the gospel, to see people reach maturity and full assurance in the gospel, to completely proclaim the word and see people completely assured in the word, also entails completing the tribulations of Christ. Commitment to the gospel will undoubtedly entail losses and social opposition. Maybe to greater or lesser degrees, depending on our context, but even in our context, you'll likely face some sort of opposition for being a Christian. You ought to. If you live in a, if you are rubbing shoulders with non-Christians. And so Paul is bearing his heart for them here, right? He wants them to know how much he cares, so they care how much he knows. I struggle for you guys, he says. I struggle for all those who I haven't seen face to face. But even as he bears out his heart to them, in so doing, he is commending the gospel to them because he's showing them that he is so devoted to the gospel that he's even willing to suffer for it. And this is one of the greatest arguments for Christianity and the resurrection. That you, you may have heard this, is that a lot of the apostles... When Jesus died, what did they do? They were kind of cowering. They didn't know what, they weren't really able to make sense of Jesus' death. And they were hiding. Well, what, what, what changed such that many, if not all of those apostles, ended up actually dying for their faith and went to the ends of the Roman Empire in order to proclaim the message? Like, if they knew that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, if they knew that what they were proclaiming was a lie, why would they die for it? And Paul specifically who was actually so opposed to the gospel that he was even killing people who believed it. He was a persecutor of the church, and now he's willing to suffer for it, even be imprisoned for it. Why would he do that if he knew it was false? He's commend By suffering for the gospel, he is commending the gospel. Fifthly, we see Paul's response. Paul rejoices as we saw Interestingly, the very top and bottom of this section mention Paul's rejoicing. Did you see that? Verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, I rejoice to see your good order. In other words, Paul rejoices in his sufferings so that he can rejoice in their good order. Uh, one of our elders at our church, he is a physical therapist uh, for his full-time job, and he's starting, he is also starting this, like, online business where he provides people rehab 
programs and such through uh, his online program. And so he's always on Instagram trying to post and share these like exercise videos and stuff. And he, yeah, one of his posts, I was, I was teasing him, one of his posts, it said, training through an injury isn't fun. He's particularly targeting like firefighters who have gone through injuries. So training through an injury isn't fun. And I took a screen capture of it and I crossed out through an injury. Training isn't fun. There, I fixed it for you, Joby. Like, I don't, I'm not the sort of person, I don't know about you, we were talking about Planet Fitness before this a little bit, I'm not the sort of person that likes working out just for the sake of working out. I played soccer in college and if, you, if there's a ball involved, then I'll run, then I'll play. But if it's just like working out for the sake of working out, nah, like, I'm not into that, right? Is that what Paul is like? Is he just like, he just likes suffering for the sake of suffering? Like, he just likes pain? Okay, or maybe if you think about it this way, the Packers are uh, not so great this year, right? Is that, that's common knowledge, right? Okay, I, though, I, I know that being a fair weather fan is kind of looked down upon, but I just call it being prudent with my time and energy. Like, I am a unashamed, if you think it's, you can watch the Packers when they're bad, that's fine, I, I don't care, do what you want, but I'm not going to. Like, I am not going to invest in them unless they make it to the playoffs, and then it's fun to watch, right? But I, I'm, a, I'm a fair weather fan. It has to be worth it. And so Paul here, I don't think he's saying, hey, I just like suffering, right? We're missing what he's saying if we think he's just rejoicing in sufferings. Like that could be really misunderstood. Sufferings are just good in of themselves. That's weird. What is he saying though? I rejoice in my sufferings because I actually see there's value in them. I, I, I value my sufferings because they are of value to you. And so what does that look like? What does it look like for us to value labor for the gospel, even to the extent that it might involve suffering for the gospel? That's really what Paul is saying here. The gospel is worth laboring for, to the extent that I will endure imprisonment for it. What does that look like? Well, first of all, it means holding on to the gospel not veering into false teaching. That's the primary application that Paul has for the Colossians. Don't go off to this false teaching. Do you see the gospel that I'm laboring for? I think it also means that we're going to want to share the gospel with others. It's getting to know our neighbors. It's starting intentional conversations with our non-believing coworkers. It's praying for our unsaved family members. I think it also may mean that we, each one of us, consider what God would have us to do in potentially entering full-time ministry. Maybe it's one of you becoming a missionary and going to a place that needs to hear the gospel. Or, or, or maybe it's serving as a, a pastor or as an elder in this church or serving full-time in a parachurch organization. We should all be considering the ways that God may be calling us to devote more of our time and energy for the gospel. I think within the church, seeing the gospel as worth laboring for means that we labor for the good of our fellow church members, like Paul is doing here. Think about how Paul is willing to labor and suffer for people, the Colossians, that he hasn't even met before. Did you notice that? All those I have not seen face to face. He doesn't know these people personally. He hasn't met them. And yet he, is, he sees himself as laboring and suffering for them. How much more should we be willing to labor for our fellow church members who we actually know? 
What does a church look like that considers laboring for the gospel as worth it? First of all, it means that as believers, we're actually a part of a church. We've actually formally committed to laboring with and for a particular people, so church membership. It means being invested in that church, not treating church as just some sort of thing we do on Sundays, some sort of auxiliary thing in our life, but actually like our, our life is, 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 is structured around our church family too and laboring together for the gospel. It means befriending and serving people in the church that maybe you don't like. I'm not going to assume that everyone here necessarily likes each other or is, uh, agrees on everything. You know, we live in very divisive times. Maybe there's someone in the church that you find kind of annoying or uncomfortable. Paul was willing to suffer jail time for people, though. Certainly, it's worth suffering a little bit of social discomfort for the sake of the gospel. It's a church made up of people who are investing in discipling others, helping them, laboring to see people reach full maturity in Christ. It's a church with people who show up to their small group, if you guys have that, or whatever programs you guys have, other meetings, not merely for what you get out of it, but eagerly looking to see how you can build up other people. It's maybe starting a book study with others in the church to help them grow in their understanding of Scripture, it's folks who open up their home to get to know other people, showing them hospitality. It's folks who give their time to serve on setup on a Sunday morning or who serve in nursery or, or do whatever you guys need to do in order to make Sundays possible. It's teaching in an elementary class, even when the kids in the church are a little bit difficult. It's providing food trains after someone has a baby or open heart surgery or whatever the case may be. It's when someone moves locations, it's showing up and helping them move because you guys care for one another. And as Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, it's not growing weary in doing good because in due season we will reap. And I love how Paul closes the book too where he talks about Epaphras' labor, Epaphras' struggling, same word, and he says he's struggling on your behalf in his prayers that one of the ways that we labor for other Christians is by praying for them. And so in closing, the gospel is worth laboring for. The gospel we believe is worth laboring for. And again, this isn't just a call to labor for the sake of laboring. I'm the sort of person that if I don't see the point in doing something, I have a hard time being motivated to do it. If I see the point in something, I'm very motivated to do it. But like, for example, when I was in middle school, I went to a Christian school, and for whatever reason, they had this fine arts competition that was statewide, and they one year decided to make everybody participate. Normally, I wouldn't participate, because I'm like, I'm not getting a grade for that. Why would I spend extra time doing that? But one year, they made us all do it. And so I was like, well, again, I don't really care too much about this. This is just sort of extracurricular. So I'll just do something to kind of check, like tick my box, and I'll be done. And so I played drums, and I drum set and snare, and so I played snare, and that was one of the things you could do for the competition. And so I signed up for a snare solo. Now I assumed that I could just bring my sheet music in and I, would just, I was just gonna sight read it. But when I showed up, they said, oh, you have to have it memorized. And so I had not practiced at all. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, whatever, I'll just get up there and just make some stuff up. This is, this is silly, I don't care about it. And apparently, People learned that I was doing a snare solo, and a bunch of my friends and classmates showed up, and I'm like, well, this isn't what I wanted. So I went up, and I just made up some stuff, and the judges were like, well, that was, that was quite good, but it had nothing, it was not what was written on your sheet music, right? 
That's the sort of person I am. If you just give me like unnecessary paperwork to do, I just find that absolutely annoying. Like there's got to be a better way to do things, right? And that's not what Paul is having us do here. He's not saying, hey, just suffer for the sake of suffering. Just labor for the sake of laboring. But he's holding out something beautiful, something amazing, that we, just like Paul gets roped into this amazing plan of God's cosmic redemption, that we get to participate in what God is doing to work redemption and renewal through local churches. The plan from all eternity to display his wisdom in the church. Nothing short than the mystery of God's plan of salvation in Christ. And if you're here today and you are not yet someone who has put your faith in Christ and hasn't put your trust in Christ, maybe you're here today in the gospel, that message of Christ's salvation, the message of Christ dying for sins is actually something foreign to you. We would love to talk to you about how you can do that, about what it looks like to actually become a worshiper of Jesus and receive the salvation that is in him. Come talk to me. Come talk to Dave, Jonathan, or others here. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time to look at your word this morning, and we pray that at Disciples Church you would make this community a people that is so locked into your gospel, that so cherishes and values your gospel, what you are doing in Jesus to save a people for yourself, that they would labor uh, without growing weary, that they would labor seeing their struggle and the energy and the toil as all worth it. Take these truths that you so graciously reveal to us in your word and press them into their hearts Open the eyes of their hearts, as you say, to captivate them with this vision of what you are doing, so that as they go out from here today, they would take the gospel with them into their homes, into their workplaces, workplaces and into their neighborhoods. Amen.